Welcome to the Spit It Out podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Avi Robbins. We are bringing you engaging discussions with thought leaders from academia and industry as we explore everything from what's in your saliva to why it's a good indicator of your overall health. Join us as we raise awareness around what saliva can tell us, why it's important for the future of healthcare, and what some really awesome people are doing about it today. Today, we're speaking with Riley Tiffin. She's the Regional Testing Coordinator at Santium Hospital. As a Regional Testing Coordinator, she's developed initiatives to bring wraparound services into laboratory testing and adjusted laboratory information system processes to fit the needs of the most vulnerable community members. Riley's collegiate and early career experience has deepened her passion for health equity, systematic thinking by forging cross-sector partnerships, creating tools to empower communities to understand their own health and developing teams and processes that meet the need of all stakeholders. Riley is passionate about bridging the gap between public health and healthcare providers to collaboratively solve the most pressing issues through innovative process changes. Riley graduated from Oregon State University in 2021 with three degrees in business management, health management, and policy and public health. Please join me in welcoming Riley to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is an honor. Yeah, I was super excited. You know, we've had a chance to meet a few times. I've I followed you around the COVID circuit. And really, every time we talk or I hear one of your talks, I just am super impressed with your passion for public health and what you've actually been able to accomplish in terms of change and community outreach. So I'm personally super excited to have you here and to share your story and, and your ongoing story with, with our listeners. Maybe we can just start for those that aren't as fortunate as I am to have gotten to know you over the couple last couple of years uh, with a quick background on what got you interested in the work that you're doing today and what led you to Santium Hospital. Yeah, so I actually went to Oregon State with the hopes of someday being a hospital CEO. And as I was there, I graduated in 2021, as you said, and so the pandemic started while I was still an undergrad. And so that makes it a little bit different to step right out of um, undergrad into a job. I was applying pretty wide and I was lucky enough to uh, stumble upon this position at Santiam. And basically the way that this position came about was after the first year of the pandemic response, the Oregon Health Authority created a regional response model that broke Oregon into seven regions. And they asked Sanium Hospital, due to our innovations being the first and only lab designated with Saliva Direct, they asked us to be the ones to be the regional laboratory partner and thereby help with alleviating barriers to COVID testing for our most vulnerable populations as were identified in the first year. And I was lucky enough to step into this job in April of 2021. And then when I graduated, it became full-time. Awesome. Maybe you can talk to us about, I know um, you mentioned this grant and the initiative to have Santiam Hospital really lead this regional response. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that looked like, the specific grant that allowed that to happen? Yeah, absolutely. So that was from the federal government put down an epidemiology and laboratory capacity building grant to states that applied and uh, received the funds. And so was that directly related to like the COVID response or yes. yes. Okay. Yes, directly for COVID. So that's what developed the regional response model out of Oregon Health Authority. And then we were just a small piece of that as the regional laboratory for region two, which meant we had seven counties. So it's 
upwards about of about 8,000 square miles of designated to provide testing for. Awesome. And what were the goals of the grant and, you know, your role in, in kind of overseeing that? Yeah, absolutely. So they brought us in as, so we were kind of asked, it's different than a usual grant, right? Where usually you apply for it, but Sanium Hospital was asked by OHA. And I was hired within a month of us receiving the grant. And so there was a pretty loose job description. Honestly, it was the only goal that in the only job description that I received was provide low barrier testing to vulnerable populations throughout your six counties. And I've grown to be very thankful for that. Maybe when I, when I first started, I was like, you know, what does this mean? I, so I started out with just saying, okay, well, I have to figure out what those barriers are in order to alleviate them. And so it, it started first with, you know, the, the usual barriers to healthcare, such as transportation, insurance, and thereby cost, as well as like childcare or missing work, those kinds of things. And all of those were very applicable to COVID. But what I found was, you know, transportation can be alleviated by going to a site and saying, hey, it, you don't have to come to the hospital, we can come to you. But a lot of the groups that we were focused on were vulnerable populations, meaning those that are in congregate settings, like long-term care facilities or incarceration or migrant workers who are usually housed in farm worker housing development complexes. And so a lot of those people, the primary care provider is the least of their concerns, especially for people in our homeless camps. Or if you are a migrant worker, why would you get a primary care provider if you're just going to move in two months? So it quickly became clear to me that one of the biggest barriers was having a primary care provider to order the test for you. And, you know, this is before those at-home testing kits, honestly, even before vaccines were fully out. And so being able to say, okay, let's figure out if we can get a primary care provider order for you. And luckily our chief medical officer signed on to saying that he would provide a blanket provider order. And as long as there was specific follow-up with each patient that tested positive, and so we all t- took a contact tracing course and made it happen. <laughs> Fantastic. That's the initiative that you had to lead, right? To understand what that was. Was there any other barriers that you were surprised about that, that maybe you, you know, you came to learn that you wouldn't have expected? Yeah, I think for COVID, it wasn't necessarily a barrier to getting to the test. Like we see with a lot of healthcare, yeah. it was the barrier of what happens if I test positive? Back then, the quarantine period was two weeks, and that's an entire pay period for a lot of people. Right. And if you're the sole income for your home, or what well, with COVID, it's highly transmissible. So the entire household would be quarantined, so there's no income. And so it really became figuring out what kind of wraparound services we could provide at point of care. So not only were we using a blanket provider order, But also we were saying, while we're in this location that is not within our hospital, it's it's in the field. We were at homeless encampments. We were at fairgrounds. There were pop-up testing sites all over the country, but maybe we're a little different because they were pretty small scale. We went directly to employers or we went directly to farm worker housing development complexes all throughout the region. And while we were there, we would say, is there anything else that you need? So there's a couple examples here. There's A lot of people don't have insurance, and so especially our more vulnerable populations that maybe don't get it through their employer or 
weren't aware of their eligibility for the Medicaid expansion Oregon Health Plan. So we hired within our department a, a Spanish-speaking Oregon Health Plan application assister, and she came with me to every single event. We were a two-man team. So we would go out and at every event, we would talk to every single patient and we could then realize any barriers that they had. So we used LabDash as our interface between patients and our lab, which basically allowed patients to create a HIPAA compliant account and then collect their test via the app. So their barcode was attached and that barcode traveled with their sample throughout our system and then resulted straight to their account. And so it kind of takes out some of the calling and the manpower to deliver test results and it makes it more accessible for the patient. But of course, not everybody has access to a smartphone or to service. And so at these events, this is where we could triage and figure out those issues. So, oh, you don't have internet access? That's okay. We have a paper form. It's easy. Just fill it in. And then usually those people that didn't have internet access also had other barriers that they were facing, but not all the time. And so other common barriers were no insurance. And so we could sign them up right on time. The other one that really struck me was, and this happened multiple times, but I'll go with John as a John Doe name. <laughs> we were at the height of Omicron. We were at the the fairgrounds up in wine country. And so there's a lot of farm workers that come through. It's fairly rural. And this one man drove through and it looked like he was living in his car, but I wasn't going to assume he didn't have internet access. And so he, he was filling out the paper form. As he was doing that, he didn't fill in a home address. You know, I said, I have to have a, a home address in order to input this into the system. When I get back tonight to fill in the computer, yeah. could you fill that in? He goes, I actually know I, I'm living at the shelter right now, so I don't really have a permanent address. And he was with his friend and his dog. I said, well, if you test positive, are you gonna be able to go back to the shelter? He said, no, I'll be in my car. And he already had a pretty nasty cough. So I thought that he, it was likely he would test positive. And even if he didn't, there's still some sort of transmissibility there of something else. So he ended up testing positive And I had asked him if that happened, if I could call some of my partners to see if they could find alternative housing for him because you're not going to get better in your car in February. And so we were able to call and we got him a hotel for two weeks that took his dog and his friend. He let a few of his other friends at the shelter know. And so we were <laughs> able to, to stop an outbreak there. So things like that, where it was, it's the what happens after yeah. that would really make people afraid of getting a test. And it's more of a psychological trust of building that trust saying, Hey, we have the resources. We just need to know that you need it and we'll be there. And, and counting on word of mouth to let people know. You know, in some of the talks you've given, you, you talk about meeting people where they are. And I think what you just mentioned was like the perfect example of trying to create a process that lets people maintain their humanity, right? But still get them the care they need to get better. Because ultimately, like you said, if it's the middle of February and you've got a respiratory infection or respiratory disease, you're not going to get better if you're, you know, living in your car. Exactly. The ability to find those programs but then to be able to individualize the, the care for, for these participants, very impactful, I'm sure. It was very empowering to say, you know, a lab can do this. Like I work in a lab and so do all of my coworkers. And usually we're not the front facing right. of the hospital, but we can be, and we can still be just as involved in the patient care continuum. And so it was really empowering for myself and also for the people that had been in a lab for longer than me and could kind of change their perspective. 
Yeah, that's a fantastic point, actually. How does your region perhaps compare to some of the other regions in Oregon? I don't know if you mentioned, is yours one of the larger regions or is more rural or are they pretty similar to the other regions? Mine is similar to two other regions. So I'm in Staten, which is outside of Salem, which is our capital. But Portland is the more well-known city in Oregon, and that's not in my region. So Portland is as urban as it gets in Oregon. And then Salem is fairly urban, usually along the I-5 corridor. There has more resources, has more people. But my region actually goes all the way up to the Central Oregon Pass. So there's two mountain ranges that come through Oregon. There's the Cascades and the Coastal Range, and mine hits both of them. Okay. So we edge up to the Central Range, and then we go over the coast all the way to the beach. So I would travel sometimes up to three to four hours okay. to get to a testing site. And Little Yahats, which has under probably 40,000 people in the town. But we've also got a couple of universities in the region. And I would say compared to Eastern Oregon, we're fairly urban, but compared to anywhere else, we're fairly rural. So we've kind of got that mix. There's a little bit more variable cultures within our region than elsewhere. Because we were the only saliva direct lab in our region, we were able to be more creative, I think, than other labs that were given the same grant we were. For example, in terms of meeting patients where they are, meeting people where they are with the services that they need, emergency response, where we don't want them all going to our ERs. And that's 101, right? We all know that. (laughs) Saliva kind of gave us this unique ability to train other people because it's validated for self-collection and because the samples in bulk could be mailed back to our lab, we were able to say, hey, Casa Lutinos Unidos, which is a CBO serving our Hispanic population, CBO meaning community-based organization. We could say, here's a box. Whenever your community needs them, if they're seeing an outbreak, you guys are the trusted leaders. You guys already know these people. If I come in from San Yim all the way to the coast, I'm more than willing to help, but maybe they're less likely to come to me because I'm not a trusted face and I'm not somebody that they'll receive care from in the future because it would be a three-hour drive. Right. So that's where I could say, here, you do it as you need and I'll give you all the resources. I can use the grant money to mail the specimens back, but that truly changed the game on what it means to meet people where they are because... Without saliva, we wouldn't have been able to do that nearly as easily. It doesn't have that sample medium in the tube, and the tubes don't expire because they're just blank tubes. (laughs) There's obviously, we have to make sure they're valid samples and all of that, but we could work out those kinks pretty easily and still provide top-notch care and route people through our system. Even if we weren't there, we could still do wraparound services when we called them to let them know they were positive. That's awesome. Do you have any sense for how many community partners you engaged over the course of your work to really create this network? Yeah, I actually do, because as part of my requirements for the grant, I sent in a quarterly report with all of my partners and how often I talked to them. And there were upwards of 300, and that was organizations. Within those organizations, there would sometimes be five to 10 people. Like for future endeavors, for anybody listening, I would say some of the most valuable ones were local nonprofit organizations, as well as schools. But, you know, schools already had a lot on their plate in COVID. And so trying to be as low footprint as possible and just say, hey, when you need it, call me. Like, just make sure that they know. And then the other one would be local public health authorities, because that's their first call is local public health. So then for you to be local public health's first call and establish yourself as a trusted partner is vital. We have one per county, but that's just kind of the way that we have it. Okay. 
You're telling me a story about, I guess, a pop-up site that you had created at a fairground. I thought you had a pretty unique approach to be able to better serve the community without having to have people wait in these long lines. When I think of COVID and the outbreak, you know, my first memories are of like getting in the car, sitting in the drive-through line for hours to get tests. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, share that experience because I, th- I think it actually provides a really good model for some future healthcare options that I want to bring up after. So yeah, this kind of goes off of that self-collection model, which again, just provides so much versatility in ways that we can provide. So you kind of painted the picture, but to go off of that, and it's the height of Omicron, we're at a fairgrounds, which has capacity for a bigger site for a higher volume of patients than let's say our parking lot (laughs) or other small organization locations. The fairgrounds had a good loop, but we were supposed to open at 2 p.m. on like January 15th. By one o'clock, we had a line all the way to the highway, which was a few miles. And they hadn't even come into our gates yet. And so we saw right away that it wasn't going to be a vaccine night because we were right alongside the vaccine crew. And so we were able to say, hey, field operations from OHA, we need your has seen, been seen throughout the pandemic of everybody uniting to come together to address this. But the local public health authority sent out a bunch of their team members that got off work early and just came out to the fairgrounds. And this is where saliva came in that yeah. basically when they entered the gate, we would hand them the test kit and all the instructions for signing up on LabDash to receive their results, as well as the simple saliva collection instructions and connecting their sample to LabDash. We had one main line that would come all the way around and then they could either exit at the end or they could turn right towards a help tent. And as they were going through the line, we had checkpoints where people would say, hey, how's it going? Do you need any help filling anything out? So we kind of gave our volunteers an FAQs list of like the address issue and or don't have internet access, those kinds of things and said, if they ask those questions, send them to the help tent. So my bilingual OHP application sister, who wore a million hats, <laughs> she and I were at the help tent. I like that you call her a sister. <laughs> well, I guess she's also a community health worker. I'll go with Yvette. Her name's Yvette. <laughs> she's phenomenal. I thought that maybe it was a play on like assistant, but like a sister, like your sister. Oh. <laughs> or if she's actually assisting you. Maybe it's just I read into it too much. <laughs> no, I like that. I could not have done any of this without her. Truly just always willing to step in and the quickest, easiest person to train. So I can call her a sister. Sorry. <laughs> so basically we would pull up to the help tent and we would get them anything that they needed and then we could send them on their way. But if they didn't need help, then they could just wave their hand out their window and say, we're done. And the volunteer was educated on how to check the sample, make sure it looked good, make sure it was connected to their account and then put it in a box and we would take it to the lab that night and we would bring home upwards of 500 samples in one night at the same time for about a week there and then it maybe hit max capacity a little bit we were doing rapid tests so the county had by next now that they were hoping to use to kind of stop the spread early but at the same time that really muddied up our line and so then we would say people would try to come into the gate and we could give them all the tools, give them the saliva kit, give them the papers and say, either drop it off here or at the county in the morning, we'll be here. And then we can, we'll still get your results and we'll, we'll get them to you as fast as we can. If you want to rapid, you will probably have to wait a lot longer in this long line, but you will get results tonight. That being said, you will have results tomorrow because saliva is really quick. It's half of the process of a nasal swab. So it's whether you want it tonight or tomorrow, I would recommend quarantining until tomorrow. And that conversation was much easier to have because 
we could give the patients that agency. I think yeah. the pandemic took away people's agency in multiple ways. And one reason that they liked the at-home testing kits, the, the rapid ones, is because they do it all themselves. Well, we were able to allow them to do it all themselves without sacrificing any sort of accuracy in the sample. Yeah. So. I think that's pretty amazing. And, you know, when you think about sort of the future of healthcare and the pandemic did anything good, it's sort of this shift in, as you say, meeting people where they are and people's like need to pull information to themselves and take control of their own kind of healthcare, which is leading to people being able to collect and participate in the healthcare closer to their home, whether it's at home or, you know, even at a doctor's office, sometimes being able to collect your sample yourself, which not only helps when there's not a lot of you know, healthcare workers available, but also, you know, just to allow you to do some things that maybe you need to do in private, you know, sometimes. But as that continues, you know, you can imagine community outreach centers or community business, you know, partners like you're mentioning, or local pharmacies really being a great place to distribute some of these diagnostic, you know, efforts, right? Like you can go pick up your, you know, self-collect kit, drop it back off, it, it gets courier to the lab, and then, you know, you get your results when they're available, right? Versus needing to go in and wait in, it, depending on obviously what you're going after, right? I'm not advocating to skip the doctor and do all the things that are necessary in specific use cases, right, that have been demonstrated to make sense. I think it's a great model for letting people take control of their own health information, right? Which ultimately allows them to maybe feel more comfortable and potentially in some cases get care faster. Exactly. Well, kind of off of that strain, as the public health emergency ended and the staffing really changed for outbreak response and emergency response, particular to COVID, we saw just a huge loss in our field operations. We couldn't say, hey, local public health authority, whenever you go out to an outreach event, bring our kits because they weren't doing those outreach events anymore. And if they were, they were an entirely different focus because of the things that were put on the back burner during the pandemic. And so we kind of had to put our heads together and get creative. You know, saliva has these really unique capabilities. And if you look at it from a business point of view, it's these value propositions, right? Of Mm -hmm. it's self-collect, the kits are stable on their own, the sample itself is stable without a sample medium. And so, what about vending machines? And what about a process that it totally gives the agency to that patient and we can put it in a location that meets them where they are and build off of the partnerships we already have and maybe even a location that has other resources too. And then they can collect the sample when they need to. They can do it in a non-stigmatized way because the vending machine is opaque. They don't know what test they're taking out of it. Well, the patient does, but a random looker does not. Then they can drop it off right there and we can have a little sensor in there that notifies our courier. And so that idea was able to blossom and we received funding from NIH's RADx, so the National Institute of Health's Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics for Underserved Populations. And that funding is allowing us to evaluate vending machines as a public health tool for COVID testing specifically, but we hope that it can be a public health intervention for other issues as well. For us right now, STIs are really making a comeback. And unfortunately, specifically in our Hispanic population, as well as our homeless communities. And so those are groups that traditionally speaking, maybe don't go to healthcare as often as others do. And how can we meet them? Can we have a vending machine in a shelter? Can we have a vending machine at a farm worker housing complex or a Mexican market, this is really able to help us 
focus on all of our strengths and make those strengths highly available to our patient population and kind of change the game a little bit for testing and how the lab is involved in healthcare. I was really fascinated when I first heard you talking about the vending machines. I know you're about to do a pilot or have started the pilot. Where will your first vending machines be? So we have two right now. We have one at the Lynn Bitten Community College in Albany, which is a small town south of me. The way that we selected the sites, we kind of had a multi-pronged approach. So the first was looking at the places that ordered the most at-home testing kits. So when those were distributed by the state government, this, you know, the state got millions okay. and distributed them accordingly. A bunch of community partners could sign up for wanting them to and distributing them. And we thought, you know, that kind of makes them a trusted location for testing. And also they ordered so many and got rid of so many, yeah. way more than their counterparts. And so they're being used in this way. Okay. And so that was one variable that we looked at. And then the other was the variation of population served. So is it multi-generational? Is it multi-language? Is there many different people coming in and out? And is it a public facility? And the answer was yes. And so there's daycare at this community college. And, you know, a lot of people that go to community college live in multi-generational homes, whether it's the parent going to school or one of the kids. And our hope is that a well-known resource throughout the community and kind of grows such in that way. And then the other location is the YMCA also in Albany. And so this kind of allows us to compare different types of organizations, see which one is maybe more accessible to different groups. The YMCA one, there's a lot of senior citizens that go there, but there's also a lot of kids that go there, but it's really set up to help low-income families. And so the goal is that this is just yet another resource that they can provide. And it's still in a location where you don't have to be a member to get it. It's a drive up and go up to the vending machine and you don't have to enter inside anywhere for either machine. That way, no other groups are put at risk from a potential COVID positive. (laughs) But as we move forward, you know, we really hope to offer other testing services, whether that's the approved health screening tests like cholesterol or glucose or it's STIs. And, you know, as saliva is used for more test types, I hope that we can continue to use the vending machines as a distribution vehicle. That's great. I'm looking forward to following up to see how that's going. Yeah. Where are you doing the development or is Santium participating in the development of some of these next generation tests for saliva or are you relying on partners for that piece of it? Yeah, we are actually. So we're working closely with Saliva Direct and some of their partners. Saliva Direct has this wonderful way of sharing samples. So, you know, we can all kind of work together to get the samples we need since saliva is still an up and coming sample type. But we did apply for a grant with them to help with the STI development and we plan to pursue it regardless of whether we get the grant. So we're doing that right here in little state in Oregon. So <laughs> we're in a no stoplight town. Actually, we're in Sublimity. The main hospital's in Staten, but our offsite lab is here in Sublimity about a mile away. And we're, we have no stoplights. We have one stop sign. You wouldn't know us from looking at us, but you walk in and it's full-blown PCR laboratory. So we're able to do everything we need to do to get some LDTs going and then support the science elsewhere. My dream would be that anything that we provide in a vending machine, we also provide in the field. For example, there's a Sanium Outreach Community Center up the canyon. And you may have heard about the fires that happened in Oregon a few years ago. 
So Sanium Hospital has been very involved in the Sanium Canyon recovery, which we've rehomed over 200 families that lost their homes in the fires. And that's done in partnership with many organizations. And so we have those established relationships outside of this COVID testing work. We also have them for other wraparound services for all of our patients. I would love to host many health fairs where we go out and we say just a health education night, and it could be STI test, COVID test, hemoglobin test, cholesterol, all of these things. And we also have a community health worker present that can speak multiple languages and can say, hey, there's a social determinants of health screening we can do. Would you need help with housing? Would you need help with medical equipment if that is a diagnosis down the line or health insurance? And you name it, let's see if we can get it for you. And I really feel as though testing in the infrastructure that we've built over the last couple of years, testing not just for COVID, but for other things as well, could be the bridge into healthcare for a lot of people and could be a method of preventative medicine, not in a wasteful way, but in a way that brings people that otherwise wouldn't approach healthcare and it brings them into a trusted space. So I think the more that saliva diagnostics can grow, the more that that dream can be a reality because it just makes it so much easier to partner with organizations, to meet people where they are, quite literally, and empower organizations to be a resource for their community members in more ways than just one. Yeah, it's definitely a great way to get back, right? And magnifies the impact that these organizations can make, right? If they can be that trusted partner and then offer additional support and services, right? Absolutely. That was a great approach, right? Rather than, you know, you see so many places try to create their own, you know, way, which isn't wrong, right? By any sense. I think it was great though, the way you found a way to just magnify other people that were already reaching the people you're trying to support. Absolutely. Like I said earlier at the beginning that I was given a very open job description. And so I had to gather as much information as possible and who better to do that from than those that are already doing similar work, but maybe need a little more resources on the COVID side, just because it was so new. And so it was a lot of cold calling and cold emailing and He's saying, hey, I have this grant. I'm going to be able to offer services, but I want to know what you need and I want to position my funding accordingly. That was really able to give us the information to make micro scale changes. I've talked about LabDash a couple of times and I mentioned the gentleman that didn't have a home. Well, I wasn't able to enter him in the system until I talked to LabDash and said, hey, I got to be able to put in people that don't have a home address. For now, I can put the location that I met him at as the last point of contact, but that's not sustainable for these people in the long run. And on the back end, it helps be able to pull out data and see how many people marked no address so that we can then use that to inform other goals and inform other partners on, hey, this many people came to us for testing, which means they probably didn't have another source, which means we need to do something. It was things like that. While I say multiple times, I, I, we couldn't have done any of this without saliva as a sample type. We also couldn't have done it without LabDash. Okay. And it's not that I'm not sponsored by them or anything. <laughs> I'm so grateful for them. They're, they're a local company that developed this software at the beginning of the pandemic. And they were so ready to pivot with any feedback. So that was one where they, within a day of me calling, they add a checkbox that says, I do not have a home address. Or we had another gentleman that didn't have healthcare insurance. And in order to verify that, it asked for his social security number. Well, 
especially where we were at in farm worker heavy environment where people it's very migrant and a lot of people there don't have citizenship so they don't have a social security number and they would be terrified when seeing that that we would mark something that says that they don't have it and they would get in trouble and I have no interest in getting them in trouble I only wanted to get them a COVID test if they needed it so I talked to LabDash and said, we got to remove that. I can't have that be a barrier to people because multiple people said, oh, no, I, I don't want to test. I, I don't think I need it anymore and would leave. And But once we changed that, they didn't leave anymore. So having those flexible technology bases to back up the work and say, you know, saliva as a sample type is super flexible. Well, so is LabDash. It gave us the ability to onboard local public health authorities to receive their own results. So we don't have to process anything on our end except for the actual sample. Yeah. And, you know, if that's because they're already into HIPAA or if it's somebody that doesn't have HIPAA liability, we would work with like Casa de Chinos Unidos or Unidos Danhill County and say, hey, we'll give you a box of kits and we'll just give you the sponsor type so that your staff can collect the samples at any time and help these people out and just send them to us as normal. But they won't receive the actual identity security of patient information that way. And then the patient had their account. And so being able to set those up made it really easy to build these partnerships. Like we have the communication with our partners, but we can also give them blocks of kits and say, go for it. Being able to deliver the results straight to the patient in a way that we can continuously edit and work with the engineers. It's not like anything I've ever seen. And I think it's really key, especially in this upcoming age where technology is going to continue blossoming, right? And making sure that our public health and clinical laboratories and technology like, can all work together okay. to meet our goals. We all have similar goals and I'm grateful that LabDash wasn't as concerned with bottom line or whatever. They just wanted to help and so they would be flexible with us. And obviously we paid them for that. The whole system was really set up with the mindset of service and that's pretty fun to be a part of. Yeah, it's funny, you know, you probably wouldn't say like associate healthcare with, you know, the flexibility and, and ability to make all these changes to make the processes easier, right? You typically think of it as bureaucratic processes that really are inflexible. And so I think it's pretty awesome the kind of changes you were able to affect, right, in order to make it more comfortable for the participants or more trusted for them and still obviously meet the requirement to provide healthcare, right? Absolutely. I mean, there are rigidities in healthcare for a reason sometimes, but thankfully, Sanium Hospital, we're a small independent 30-bed hospital. Most of Oregon is pretty large health systems with, you know, Providence or Good Samaritan or Legacy, and we have remained independent. And I could walk into the CEO's door anytime and say, hey, I want to be able to do this. I have the funding to do it. What do you say? And it fits all policies and procedures. And she said, great, if it'll help people do it. And I'm so grateful for this job, especially right out of undergrad, because it gave me the mindset that that's possible yeah. and that doing it for the right reasons is amazing. And, you know, thankfully I was here during the pandemic where we needed anything we could get to help these people out. I don't think that the lack of bureaucracy is common. And I'm really grateful that Sanium was chosen for this grant so that we could enact the changes that we did. No, it's definitely fantastic. And it's definitely clear that we need more people like you out there, right? Trying to make these positive changes. And if you're still interested in being the hospital CEO one day, you've clearly demonstrated your ability to like implement strategy, right? Take big, ambiguous goals and implement them. And 
develop value propositions, right, for <laughs> saliva-based testing. So Thank you. you got some great experience right out the gate, it sounds like. What's next for you? I understand there's some exciting next steps coming up. Yeah, so I actually have applied to the Peace Corps and I'm hoping to be placed in South or Central America to develop my Spanish speaking skills for the future. I took about nine years of Spanish in school, so hopefully I've got a good base level to work from, but way better than mine. <laughs> I'm really excited. I hope to be working with indigenous youth in Panama and helping them understand their own health a little bit better and find resources through partnerships to improve that health and just see what what else I have to learn. I think it's really important to get a global perspective and I'm really grateful that I'm in the position where I can pursue that. The Peace Corps specifically is such a long-term position. So to your commitment, which I feel gives the potential to enact more change and really build relationships and focus on building the relationships for a good amount of time to then reach the goals that the community itself wants. It doesn't matter what I see as what works and what doesn't. What matters is what will work for them. And I really hope to go at it with a culturally informed approach and learn a lot. I want to learn. Do you see it as a departure from your career path or as a, obviously it's a learning experience. So where do you go from there in your mind? Who knows what will come out of it at the end of that, but how do you see that? So I mentioned that I went into college wanting to be a CEO of a hospital. And so with that at Oregon State, the public health, health management and policy degrees made the most sense. So public health felt like a means to an end. And over the last couple of years, it's kind of become the goal. A hospital feels too small, almost. Like I wouldn't want to be as concerned about making things work internally and like working out little kinks. I want to be more focused on who else we can serve and how we can serve more and how we can build programs out. And I think for good reason, hospitals have to be focused internally more or CEOs of hospitals sometimes do. They have departments that can look outward, right? So I really have become passionate about how diagnostics can be a part of preventative healthcare and how it can be a part of building infrastructure and community systems for safety nets for people. So I would love to be involved in diagnostic development in undergrad, I was part of a analytical chemistry lab that developed point of care microfluidic blood separation devices. And it basically was lab on a chip. It took the centrifuge out of the equation and we could test for bilirubin indicative of levels for jaundice and for other things as well. Doctoral student that developed that, I was an undergrad, so I just did what he told me to do. But um, he's a brilliant man, but in order to around he got a different job and so i would love to bring that as well as saliva based testing that hopefully gets developed in the next two years while i'm gone <laughs> um, and be a part of bringing those to other communities around the world that have much more resource stringent capabilities than we do i think we have the potential to bring these test types to areas that don't have dependable electricity we have the ability to kind of change the way that they receive healthcare, especially in those more rural communities that are very separated from rural here looks a lot different than rural in South America, right? right? So that's part of also why I want to do the Peace Corps is to understand what barriers they face and both culturally and logistically and just resources in general and understand 
how to meet those in a culturally competent way. And so I hope that when I come back, I can have an informed approach and be able to disseminate these solutions in a way that benefits the communities in real ways and in ways that they would receive well. So that would be the long-term goal. So yes, I do think it has changed my career path. (laughs) I'm really excited for the change. It feels more aligned with myself and my passions. I love learning about other cultures. I love being immersed in new things. So. Yeah, it sounds like a great way to make a bigger impact, like you mentioned, and really, and to see, you know, other parts of the world. So it sounds super exciting. Thank you. Really want to thank you for, for joining us today um, and sharing your journey as the regional testing coordinator at, at Santiam Hospital. It's clear to me, you know, your passion for health equity and ability to bring innovative solutions through COVID testing has been very valuable for the populations that you're serving. You've demonstrated your culturally informed fieldwork, as, as you like to call it. And it's really true in, in the way you've been able to reach out to your community and understand their needs. And, you know, making healthcare more accessible, highlighting the inclusivity and this tailored approach. As I mentioned before, I think it's powering in the way that you've been able to do that. So I wish you the best of luck with your future, uh, including joining the Peace Corps. You know, I know you'll continue to make a, a positive difference there. And I'd absolutely love to catch up with you uh, next year to see how everything is going there. Thank you. I appreciate it, Avi. Thanks for this opportunity. I hope that Slavic Diagnostics continues to grow and meets everybody that needs it. Sounds like we've got two years to figure it out yeah. until, until you're ready. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Spit It Out podcast. I'm your host, Avi Robbins. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on our journey to raise awareness about saliva diagnostics, the future of healthcare, and hear stories from some really awesome industry and academic leaders.